So good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the first of this series of lectures on extreme Christianity, which I'm going to be offering at Gresham College during this year. Um, let me begin before I turn to, to today's subject about why I think this topic is, 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 is a way that's worth, in this way of framing the topic is one that's worth thinking about. We are very familiar nowadays with thinking about religious extremism, uh, a phrase which in modern usage is nine times out of ten a code for Islamic extremism. But it's not clear how helpful the notion of extremism really is when we're thinking about religion. For a start, most religions of whatever kind make ultimate or totalizing claims of, of some sort. It's in the, in the nature of a religion to do that. Uh, in, in some ways, it's hard to see how you can seriously embrace any religion without being an extremist or at least an absolutist of some kind. It's one thing to, to be an atheist or an agnostic, but to be a moderate believer to profess a religious faith but not to let it affect your life too much. That's a problematic stance. And while it is in fact a stance that a great many people adopt now and have adopted throughout history, the, the more extreme believers can be forgiven for thinking that they're simply being consistent. They're taking seriously what they profess to believe and its implications. As the proverb goes, extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice, nor by extension is extremism in the pursuit of true faith. So when we describe people as religious extremists, we should be aware that we are complementing them. But when we talk about religious extremism, we're not usually actually talking simply about people who are passionately committed to their faith but about, instead about people who've taken their faith in an unusual direction, especially one that's violent or that's socially or politically destabilizing in some way. And people who attack or disrupt social and political norms tend to provoke a strong reaction up to and including state repression and popular violence. So it's always been, so it still is. Now, leave aside for, the question of, for a moment the question of whether that reaction is justified in a particular case. There's also a good question to be asked about whether or not it works. Disruptive religious extremists of this kind know that their views are countercultural and unpopular, and they may well glory in or thrive on that fact. They're prophets, they're brave, lonely heralds of the truth. And being opposed only proves that they're right. Now, that may sound like a council of despair. Neither toleration nor suppression can actually do anything to stop disruptive extremism. Well, my purpose in these lectures is to offer what I hope will be some more constructive examples. I'm going to be looking at four historical case studies of disruptive extremism in the Christian world over the last few centuries. Movements which in their time ranged from the unnerving and ridiculous through to the genocidal. And what I want to do with them in each case is to try to understand them from within. 
not to justify them, but to explain why people who were inherently no more stupid and wicked than we are might well have embraced them. That's partly as a reminder that religious extremism in any age has its own logic and in its own terms makes sense. But also, and less platitudinously, I hope, because each of these cases also shows an example of how a disruptive religious movement comes to an end. Sometimes as a result of external suppression, at least in part, but more often as its own internal dynamics progress to the point where a movement has burnt itself out or been trapped by its own inner logic. In future lectures, we'll be looking at the, the Millerites, the apocalyptic movement that convulsed the United States in the 1840s. We'll be looking at the German Christian movement that affiliated itself or tried to affiliate itself with the Nazi regime in Germany. And we'll be looking at the Dutch Reformed Church of South Africa, which created the concept of apartheid and then eventually walked away from it. But today we're staying closer to home and going a bit further back looking at one of the, the great explosive moments of religious and sectarian creativity in world history, England in the 1640s and 1650s, the era of the Civil War and the Republic. Now, I'm not going to talk you through the set of crises which unexpect, very unexpectedly took England from a, a long lifetime of settled political and religious stability, which lasted between 1559 and 1640, through to a vicious civil war beginning in 1642. There are political, legal, cultural issues of all sorts. There are also fatal clashes of personality driving these events. And whatever other deep forces were at work, if King Charles I had been less disastrously inadequate as a ruler, the crisis would not and could not have unfolded as it did. There is maybe, especially for our own times, a certain urgent tragedy in the way that war crept over England. How a people who had grown used to peace and order and who didn't really think that the depth and bitterness of their political divisions posed any significant danger suddenly realized too late that a full-blown war was upon them. But the, the crucial accelerant to this fire was deep religious antagonism. The king favoured a hierarchical, ceremonial form of Protestantism, a sort of precursor to modern Anglicanism, although I'm uneasy applying that word to the period. And he's foolish enough to attempt to enforce it not only on England, where a vocal and militant portion of the population are bitterly opposed to that, but also fatally onto Scotland, where the same opposition extended to almost the whole of the political and religious establishment. And famously, this was the response to the first attempt to use the service book that he tried to enforce there. Those opponents of the king's religious policy, north and south of the border, whom, for want of a better word, we might as well call Puritans, they represented a tradition of disgruntled Protestantism that had been convinced for generations that England's Protestant Reformation was a poor, brackish, half-stunted thing. A half-reformation whose true spirit had been bound and shackled by lordly bishops and the kings and nobles whom they'd befuddled. And these Puritans now feared that King Charles and his bishops weren't so much cramping the true church 
as actually throttling it. And in particular, they feared that unwittingly, or maybe even deliberately, the king was leading his subjects back to the Roman Catholic Church, to what they saw as popish tyranny. So when England slid into civil war in 1642, plenty of people on both sides understood themselves to be fighting a war of religion. Royalists were fighting for the old church and for good order against the fanatics. Parliamentarians were fighting for the true reformation against crypto-papists. Now, so far, none of this is what I would class as extremism. For most English parliamentarians and for most of the Scottish covenanters who fought with them, true reformation meant some form or other of Presbyterian church. An established church embracing the entire nation, self-governing, independent or more or less independent of royal and state control, committed to a clear and stern Calvinism, stripped of popish flummery and ceremony as they would see it, and governed by committees, elected from amongst its ministers rather than by lordly bishops. Systems like that were already partly established in Scotland, in the Netherlands, in portions of Switzerland and Germany and elsewhere. So if this had happened, it would certainly have taken English history in a new direction. But in the context of the time, it wouldn't have been particularly extremist. The moment when it might have happened was late 1644, after a a crushing victory by a Scots parliamentary army at the Battle of Marston Moor. We don't have a good contemporary depiction of the battle itself. We do have a depiction of the murder of Prince Rupert's famous dog. That's the best we can do. Um, Who was said by parliamentarians to be a devil. Um, So after this this, crushing defeat of the Royalist army, when, in effect, the Royalists lose the north of England, there's talk of a negotiated peace. The deal that was on the table would have seen a chastened king accepting a sort of house-trained variant of Presbyterianism. But if Charles I had been the kind of man who would have accepted terms like that, then the war would never have begun. By the winter of 1644-5, it's clear that Parliament is going to have to fight the war to the end, although it is not yet clear what the end might be it is clear that they're going to have to fight a new kind of war. Up till now, parliamentarians have generally been fighting off royalist attacks. Their armies are fragmented, essentially regional. Now they have to go on the offensive to defeat the king in his heartland in the Midlands and in the west of England. And that requires a new strategy, and in Wales, of course. That requires a new strategy. And so fatefully, in January 1645, Parliament votes to consolidate its hodgepodge of forces into what it calls a new modelled army, a professional national force which could fight the war to the finish. Now, in military terms, this is very effective. Less than six months later, on the 14th of June 1645, the new army crushes a veteran royalist force at the Battle of Naseby in Northamptonshire, In September, the army takes what is left of Bristol, a royalist stronghold which had once been England's third city. By early 1646, royalist resistance is virtually over. But the army's career is only just beginning. 
I mean that partly in military terms, in a series of further campaigns in England and Scotland and Ireland over the next decade and a half, it was to prove itself an exceptionally formidable fighting force, man for man, a match for any army in the world at the time. But it also quickly became and remained until 1660 the primary source of political power in the British Isles. The king wasn't actually defeated by Parliament. He was defeated by the army. But almost everything else that I'm going to say today follows from that fact. Now, when armies intervene in politics nowadays, we, we tend to think of them as authoritarian and conservative forces. But this army was created, as its new modelled moniker indicated, it was created to be God's army, to be the people's army. It's a meritocracy of true believers. It imagines itself to be the true custodian of the godly cause, much more so than the House of Commons, which had been elected way back in 1640, dating from another world. In 1647, one zealous London Puritan called the army our army, the army that we had poured out to God so many prayers and tears for, that we had largely contributed unto, that they've made voluntary donations to. They were, he says, as our right hand. The soldiers themselves had earned their moral authority by risking their lives. And God had plainly bestowed that authority on them by rewarding them with an unbroken run of victories. So this is a godly army, but it's godliness of a particular kind. The breakdown of religious authority since the beginning of the decade, had given a vocal minority of English Protestants a taste for religious experiment. Even if they still, in theory, wanted a unified national church, a proper Presbyterian settlement, for example, it took heroic patience in the midst of a war to wait so that the whole country might be able to reach that point in lockstep, especially when the new Jerusalem is is there for the taking. And so a vanguard of advanced reformers find themselves wanting to enjoy true Christian purity here and now. In 1641, even before the war, the Puritan hero Henry Burton, who'd had his ears cut off for his public opposition to Charles I's religious policy, Burton is advocating a network of what he calls independent churches. Churches which aren't governed by bishops, but nor are they governed by presbyteries. They're governed by the law of Christ and by mutual consultation and advice, effectively self-governing. And some zealous souls are already starting to put that advice into practice. These independent congregations were never numerically dominant, but they're zealous, they're high profile, and they bridle at Presbyterians who want to make them march to a slow, orderly, national tune. The young poet John Milton He's one of the most passionate early advocates for independency. He brackets bishops and presbyteries together as disciplinarian forces of conscience. Some independents begin to talk about toleration, not as a pragmatic solution, but as a principle. In 1644, Parliament tries to reimpose some order onto a a, a printing industry where the censorship had pretty much collapsed. And Milton famously defends a free press as a matter of principle. The Presbyterians claimed that they were opposed to religious persecution, unlike the the wicked Catholics. 
um, that you know, they will never put anyone to death for their religious beliefs. This is a, is, a, is a boast. But Milton argues that it's almost as good to kill a man as kill a good book. Who kills a man kills a reasonable creature, God's image, but he who destroys a good book kills reason itself, kills the image of God. And Protestant that he was, he lodges his complaint at the ultimate court of appeal, conscience. He claims the freedom to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. Now, the Presbyterians' retort to this is that that sort of liberty leads directly to heresy and to blasphemy. In their view, the independents are never merely orthodox Calvinists who simply want to run their own show. They always concealed views which, as, the, as, as one of the Presbyterian opponents of them said, were higher flown, more seraphical. Now, that's not true. Plenty of, of independents were, were essentially orthodox, including the, the most famous of all of them, Oliver Cromwell. But there were some for whom independency of this kind was a gateway drug. There had been a radical sectarian underground in London, even in the 1630s, and now it begins to come out into the open. And so even as a Presbyterian victory over royalist crypto-Catholicism is, is, is in, the, in its grasp, even as the war is coming to an end, Presbyterianism is unraveling on its other flank. And Parliament, while it's horrified by these novelties, under the circumstances can't muster either the votes or the will for a serious crackdown. They can't fight a war on two fronts. Worst of all, the primary vector for this new radical inf infection is the new modelled army itself. It's not simply that the zealous types who volunteered for military service in the godly army were disproportionately independent. The whole the essence of this independent movement was its denial of a fixed network of parish churches. And the army, which by definition is on the move, is outside that network to begin with. The army's chaplains are under the army's own discipline. And its soldiers, who are risking their lives in God's service, have their own voices. Richard Baxter, who's the um, Worcestershire clergyman, who's, who's one of the most humane pastoral theologians of his age, uh, recalled how early in the war, he and his fellow parliamentarians in the Midlands believed that the war was being fought in defense of our old principles, only to save the parliaments and kingdom from papists and delinquents. This is standard, moderate parliamentarian position. But shortly after the Battle of Naseby, he happened to visit the army's encampment. And he recalled later, among Cromwell's soldiers, I found a new face of things, which I never dreamt of. I heard the plotting heads very hot upon that which intimated their intention to subvert both church and state. Independency and Anabaptistry were most prevalent. Antinomianism and Arminianism, these shocking radical doctrines, are equally distributed. Something new was brewing in the army's ranks. The old principles were no longer to be had. And so when the king finally surrendered in 1646, he faced a divided gaggle of victors. There's now a, a sort of Presbyterian establishment that set itself up with rather lukewarm backing from Parliament. But it's struggling to make its long-dreamt-of settlement stick. 
Presbyterian structures are set up, but actually compelling parish churches to belong to them is, is all but impossible. In effect, every parish church, whether they like it or not, has become independent, free to choose whether or not it's going to submit to Presbyterian discipline or whether it will stick to something like the old Church of England's rites from before the war, which are now supposed to be illegal, although that's not really enforced, or perhaps they're going to explore wilder shores. For ranged over against the Presbyterians is the army, increasingly insistent that no political or religious settlement with the defeated king is valid unless they agree to it. Quite what it was that the army wants is not yet clear. The leading officers, it looks, are willing to contemplate a political settlement which permits quite a lot of religious toleration, but which otherwise just about recognizably looks like pre-crisis England. But for many of the rank and file, that moment has passed. And this is what leads us famously to the group whom we know as the Levellers, who are justly famous now as the first political movement in recorded history calling for representative democracy in the modern sense of the word. Their ambitions are first articulated by a series of radical pamphlets in 1645-6, but in 1647 they get taken up in earnest by the army's rank and file and reinforced by London-based petitions which gather tens of thousands of signatures. Their demands include having parliaments elected every two years by something not too far from universal male suffrage with guarantees of freedom of religion and of equality under the law. There are even some, not many, who talk about votes for women. As to the king, some of them openly call for a republic. They certainly refuse to cede any real power to the man who'd intended our bondage and brought a cruel war upon us. It's, of course, the war which has made this sort of radicalism possible. Going back to 1640, pretending that nothing had happened is not adequate. The Army Leveller's central manifesto declares that their wartime service had made plain at how high a rate we value our just freedom. They've put their lives on the line and they're not simply willing to go home. And there was also a broader sense that the past was gone and irrecoverable. They were in a new world and a new world needs new rules. There are even some royalists who are tempted by these sorts of ideas. After all, if what you're afraid of is the, the tyranny of Parliament, that, that sense that what we're dealing with it wasn't simply entering into a, a new world, but being at a critical moment, a, a, a climactic moment indeed of human history, of cosmic history, is, is feeding into this. If you look at the events of the Civil War and what's led up to it through certain Protestant eyes, then you think, well, the living God who acts providentially in history has renewed his gospel at the Reformation. Since then, the Romish Antichrist has mustered all his forces in response, and now this has come to a head in a series of catastrophic religious wars which have convulsed all of Europe, and finally they've now come to the gospel's last outpost to England, at the, at the world's westernmost extreme. And finally, at terrible cost, victory's been won, power's been providentially given to God's own army. This is a hinge moment in the history of the world. God is going to do something new. And so the levelers 
consistently oppose Presbyterian plans for what they call a compulsive mastership or aristocratical government over the people. What they want is a government which has no authority over religion at all because, they said, therein we cannot remit or exceed a tittle of what our consciences dictate to be the mind of God without willful sin. The conscience won't allow state authority to have any space. Explicitly, this means refusing to let anybody define orthodoxy for them. Now, if you're a respectable Calvinist of of any kind, you think orthodoxy is policed by the scholarship of university-trained ministers. But what if the universities have become a self-serving guild which exclude inconvenient truths? What use is book learning when the Spirit of God is abroad teaching people directly? The Radical Army Chaplain Chaplain John Saltmarsh claimed that Presbyterians insisted that God must not speak till man give him leave. Saltmarsh instead appealed to the infinitely abounding spirit of God which blows when and where it listeth. And the levelers felt that breath on the backs of their necks. It could never have worked. And even if impossibly they had managed to secure truly free elections, they would have been routed. Their rather awkward argument that everybody should be allowed to vote apart from Catholics and Royalists shows that they know that. But in any case, the discussions are cut short because it doesn't do to leave a live king out of your calculations. In December 1647, Charles escaped from captivity, gathered fresh supporters. Old royalists were joined by some Presbyterians who'd concluded that the army's radical ways were a more serious threat than the king. And a second civil war ensued, which lasted for most of 1648, although Charles himself was fairly quickly recaptured. The new royalist coalition could have been formidable, but it's disparate, it's disorganized, and the army does what it did best. Local revolts were put down one by one. A Scottish royalist army, the most substantial, is taken unawares by a slightly smaller English force at Preston in Lancashire and beaten into a bloody surrender. And now the army, officers and men alike, are unforgiving. King Charles is a war criminal, a man of blood, who bears responsibility for his subject's deaths. By restarting a war that he had already lost, he has openly defied the verdict of God. There's talk of forcing him to abdicate in favor of one of his sons, but even now, compromise was still not Charles I's style. He tries to strike a deal with the parliamentary leadership over the army's heads. A crucial parliamentary vote on the 5th of December, 1648, suggests that it might actually happen. And the result is an open coup. The army moves into Westminster. 45 MPs are briefly imprisoned. Nearly 300 more are excluded, leaving a hard core of only about 70 who were sympathetic to the army's views. Eventually, another 130 or so are allowed to trickle back to the body, which would become known crudely but fairly as the rump parliament. But by the time they come back, this body has already carried out the task for which it was created. It put its sovereign lord, King Charles I, on trial for treason against himself, and on the 30th of January, 1649, cut off his head. Now, the king's death opens up three possible ways forward. One is to conclude that with this exceptionally awful king gone, 
normality of some kind can now resume. That's what the Scots do. They proclaim the dead king's son as King Charles II as soon as the news from London reaches them. The new king in continental exile is not all that keen on accepting the sort of filleted crown which Presbyterian Scotland is offering him, but even royal beggars can't be choosers, and so in 1650 he lands in Scotland to claim it. Relations with his Scottish subjects are not warm, um, and nor is England's response to this. The army under Oliver Cromwell's leadership invades, defeating the Scots royalists in a series of brutally effective battles, the only successful English conquest of Scotland in history. Um, In 1651, Charles himself narrowly escapes to exile once again, and so the first option, a restored monarchy, fails, but not utterly. It sleeps until the second one has run its course. The second possible response is the one that's taken by the new regime in London, and that's to reform what they see as the state's abuses while still maintaining a degree of continuity. Following the king's execution, they declare a republic. But this isn't truly an extremist regime. The fundamental structure of the English state and of English law doesn't change. The Republican leadership experiments with different governing structures over the following decade, the the rump parliament ineffective, increasingly friendless, is forcibly dissolved by the army in 1653 when it tries to make its own rule perpetual. A brief quixotic attempt is made to replace it with a nominated parliament known derisively as Barebones' Parliament, many of whose members were drawn from the independent churches. But when the radical wing of that assembly threatened to take control, it's closed down too. Oliver Cromwell himself, who's been the effective ruler of the country for some time, now openly takes charge as Lord Protector. And the the five years of his protectorship, nearly five years, bring a degree of stability. Cromwell is even pressed to become king, which he and the army leadership refuse. But when he dies in 1658, even though he's not king, he's succeeded as protector by his son, Richard Cromwell. But During the following two years, 1658 to 60, the Republican regime unravels amidst rising panic about sectarianism. The army, which doesn't trust young Richard Cromwell, deposes him in the spring of 1659, and there's a bewildering succession of of attempted governing structures which come and go over the following few months until eventually one of the most powerful of the generals accepts the growing clamor for what by then started to look like the only viable option, restoring the monarchy. Charles II returns in 1660, pledging forgiveness and moderation, promises which he didn't violate quite as thoroughly as some had feared he would. So in the end, the second option fails absolutely. There's nothing like putting extremists in power to expose them for what they really are. Republican government turned out to be simply old England in new dress. There are even traces of that in the religious policy, which on the face of it is the one genuinely radical thing about this this government. Cromwell is profoundly persuaded by the arguments in favor of religious tolerance. Famously, momentously, he ends England's centuries-old exclusion of Jews from the country. Almost as momentously, momentously, he extends toleration to the Baptists, who go from being a a marginal sectarian movement in pre-war England to a church tens of thousands strong by 1660 and tens of millions strong worldwide today. 
adult baptism had long been a, a symbol of extremism for establishment Protestants because it meant abandoning the notion of an all-inclusive national church. But once that notion of a national church is in ruins anyway, well, you know, why not? But Cromwell's tolerance is not limitless. He excludes any religion which is politically subversive or dangerous. That includes the levelers, who are suppressed by force after the king's execution. But it also means Catholics, or indeed the, the much too bishopy practices of the pre-war Church of England. Bishops mean tyranny. And all the Republican regimes also maintain the underpinning structure of a national church. Nobody's now compelled to attend their parish church, but most people do. The government vets ministerial appointments and expels known royalists. And above all, tithes continue to be legally required. This is a key betrayal for the radicals. Tithes are the, the makeshift local taxes which support local parish churches and from which very often landowners took a considerable cut. Radicals of all kinds railed against them, but tithes as a symbol of continued social order became a totemic issue for the establishment. It becomes something on which neither side is willing to compromise. It's when Barebones' parliament considers a motion abolishing tithes in 1653. That's the trigger for Cromwell to step in and abolish the assembly. It's a step too far. Because the route that they were beginning to take, had it been possible, was the third option. The third way of remaking England in the wake of the king's death. Not the same old England dressed up, but the leveller's vision taken up and transformed, the first fruits of a world remade under Christ. In 1647, the army chaplain John Saltmarsh, who I quoted before, argued that a new age was dawning, the age of the Holy Spirit. Christians, he said, should no more stay in the old church, stuck as it was in its old ways, than Christ's original disciples should have stayed in his tomb on Easter morning after he'd risen from the dead. That's the easy part. But once you've decided that you should leave the old churches behind you in a new age of the spirit, where should you go? The most straightforwardly revolutionary ambition was for a so-called fifth monarchy. In biblical prophecy, the first four monarchies are human empires, and the fifth would be Christ's kingdom on earth. In the turmoil of the 1640s, it is not foolish to think that the time has finally come. Immediately after the king's execution, a fifth monarchist petition calls on the army to encourage the godly to form themselves into families, churches, and corporations until they thus multiply exceedingly. The idea is that a self-governing godly republic will effectively sort of wriggle free from its cocoon and the husk of worldly government and law around it will simply wither away. In the meantime those who are in power should prepare for the emergence of this new kingdom by, of course, abolishing tithes, but also by imposing ferocious legislation against immorality of all sorts, redistributing land radically to the poor, simplifying the law. There are those who argue that no law should be allowed to have more than 26 words in it. Um, and purging the universities. Levelers had wanted the rule of the people, but the Fifth Monarchists, this is a little different. They want the rule of the godly. 
those of the godly who are actually in power regard these idealists with a, sort, a certain patronizing tolerance. Um, in return, the fifth monarchists revile their republican rulers as illegitimate. They dream about foreign adventures. There's talk of the new model army crossing the channel to tear down the, the rotten edifice of papacy and march in gospel victory all the way to Rome and to Constantinople. At home, they talk fruitlessly about armed insurrection. And the regime, I think sensibly, never seems to have regarded them as very dangerous. There were some who took more direct action. In May 1649, Gerard Wynne Stanley lays claim to the leveller's inheritance for his group, the so-called diggers. They occupy a plot of land which has been shown to Wynne Stanley in a dream, and they propose to work it together, holding all property and all produce in common. This is not, as it's often taken to be, an anticipation of communism. Wynne Stanley's commune is a prophetic act. It presages, he says, a new heaven and a new earth in which none shall lay claim to any creature and say, this is mine and that is yours, this is my work, that is yours. There shall be no buying, nor selling, no fairs, nor markets, but the whole earth shall be a common treasury for every man, for the earth is the Lord's. Everyone shall work in love, one with and for another. Now, this experiment is forcibly broken up within a few months. And when Stanley eventually returns to a life of genteel respectability. But other subversives are pushing in different directions. In the summer of 1649, a preacher of, I think we have to say, questionable mental stability, named Abiezer Kopp, produces a book which claims that sword leveling or digging leveling, you know, the, the, the approaches taken by the levelers and the diggers, are but shadows of most terrible yet great and glorious good things to come. Behold, 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 I, the eternal God, the Lord of hosts, who am that mighty leveler, am coming to level the hills with the valleys and to lay the mountains low. Cop had his sights set on what he calls the plaguey holiness of the Presbyterians and also of the independents. People whose religion, he says, is no more than horrid hypocrisy, envy, malice, evil surmising, an engine for moral self-satisfaction. Well-heeled believers using their own self-awarded godliness to lift themselves up in their own minds above the poor, whom they ought to love but in fact despise. Cop urges Christians to love not only the poor, but thieves, whoremongers and other notorious sinners. He theatrically abandons both his own dignity and any pretensions to morality. He ran through London's streets, as he tells us, charging at the coaches of the wealthy, gnashing with my teeth, with a huge, loud voice, proclaiming the day of the Lord. He prostrated himself before rogues, beggars, cripples, kissing their feet. He sat down and ate and drank around on the ground with gypsies, and clipped and hugged and kissed them, putting my hand in their bosoms, loving the she-gypsies dearly. Comments like that, and especially his notorious claim that he would love my neighbor's wife as myself, are what make him notorious. But his supposed sexual libertinism is a side issue. Cop's point was that a true Christian, as he said, must lose all his righteousness, every bit of his holiness, every crumb of his religion. Only then can he reach the point where he knows no evil. Religion, holiness, righteousness are for him become words so contaminated by hypocrisy that he wants to be rid of them. Cop is 
associated with a group of so-called ranters around whom a, a sudden moral panic ballooned in 1649-50. This panic is mostly about sex. Former ranters did claim to have taught, for example, that till you can lie with all women as one woman and not judge its sin, you can do nothing but sin. But the sort of prurient publicity around this, I think, rather misses the point. The ranters' assault on traditional moral norms was driven by their understanding of God. They call God the being, the fullness, the great motion, reason, the immensity. They seem to have taught a kind of pantheism, holding that all things are part of God, including themselves, and, and, and hence the, the libertinism. If they are God, and they're fully aware that they are God, then how can they possibly do wrong? But also hence the radical egalitarianism. Everyone is a part of God. So how can social barriers have any meaning? They don't like talk of resurrection or judgment. Instead, they talk about the dead returning to that infinite bulk and bigness, so-called God, as a drop into the ocean. Now, this quixotic, short-lived, probably tiny movement matters less in its own right than as a clue to the wider milieu which people at the time call the world of seekers. Seekers are in no sense a sect. They're a mood a restless conviction that established forms of Christianity were inadequate and needed to be abandoned. There are some seekers who wait for the new age of the spirit to reveal itself and others who set out to create it. Let me look at one of these people with you. This is Mary Springett, the kind of zealous Puritan for whom the early 1640s should have been filled with opportunity. But instead, when she saw the independence and even the Baptists' godly reformations, she says, I saw death there. Instead, she told us, I changed my ways often, this is from her autobiography written some years later, and ran from one notion to another, not finding satisfaction or assurance that I should obtain what my soul desired. And she eventually abandoned the formal religious duties in which she'd once been scrupulous, although most of my time in the day was spent either in reading scriptures or in praying. And like the, the ranters, during these years, she developed a deep suspicion of outward religion. She actively sought out the people of no religion, as she puts it, because they at least are not hypocrites. She even began to explore worldly pleasures, not sexual libertinism, but carding, dancing, and jovial eatings and drinkings. For a former Puritan, that's quite bad enough. <laughs> She becomes convinced, as she puts it, that there had been nothing manifest in, in the world since the Apostles' days that was true religion. That while there may be true religion, it's, it's, it's completely inaccessible. And she resolved in my heart I would be without a religion until the Lord manifestly taught me one. Now, resolving to be without a religion might sound like atheism, and that accusation was often made against people like this. But in fact, she's trying to be what the 20th century, would, what, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have called a religionless Christian, gouging out hypocrisy and formalism, even if, at the end, there was nothing left. That's what living on the cusp of the age of the Spirit meant. We can appreciate that people like Abiezer Kopp or Mary Springett were extremists by the standard of their times, or indeed almost any time. But that doesn't mean that they were crazy. Yes, they are fundamentally challenging the political, religious, legal, social, economic, and gender structures of their time. 
But the golden thread tying all of this together is an almost mundane Protestant religiosity. Martin Luther would have had no hesitation in calling these people fanatics, which wasn't a compliment coming from him. But he also had a lot in common with them. Like him, these people had had a profound experience of God's immediate grace. They knew that their consciences stood naked and shameless before God. Luther's insistence that true faith could overcome sin isn't very different from Cop's intention to forswear righteousness and religion so that he could know no evil. Even the extravagant mood has something comparable in it. Like Luther, these radicals read their Bibles to make sense of their experiences. And they won't allow any human authority to overrule them in interpreting them. The difference is that Luther defies the church using scripture, but these seekers, like some of the early radicals in Luther's own time, defy learned theology with an appeal to an authority that no one can refute. Direct revelation from God. But while respectable English people are profoundly alarmed by the ranters and disturbed by the seekers... In retrospect, the clearest feature of these groups is their instability. They couldn't have lasted. Their howls of rage or cries of anguish and groups like that exhaust themselves very quickly. The primary long-term inheritors of this moment of sectarian convulsion would be the one group who proved able to take those radical impulses and stabilize them into a permanent functioning community able to build an extremism whose feet are firmly planted on the ground. This is the group that Mary Springett, like many other rootless radicals, eventually made her home, the Quakers. The Quakers' origins remain obscure. They sprang up almost unnoticed in the north of England and are already formidable when they begin to attract serious attention. They've got plenty of origin myths, mostly based around the story of their early leader, George Fox, but Fox is only one of many. Rather than forming around one prophet, Quakerism coalesced from a series of radical separatist groups who recognized the same spirit in one another. Many seekers seem to have felt, this is what Mary Springett felt, that when they first encountered Quakerism, they were meeting something that they already knew and that was on the tips of their tongues. Because Quakerism's core doctrine is that the truth, the inner light, is already within each of us. They scorned university theologians who, as George Fox put it, merely had the written Bible while Quakers had the living word. Like Cop and others who looked to the levelers, the Quakers also taught a doctrine of absolute human equality. They accepted no titles, no ministry. They thundered against the self-awarded privileges and self-important learning of the clergy They not only won large numbers of women converts, but they had prominent women leaders and preachers. From a standing start in the early 1650s, they numbered many tens of thousands by the end of the decade, outstripping every other sect in England, most of them many times over. It was exhilarating for them and terrifying for their neighbors. Because what marks the Quakers out from their predecessors is their severe and exemplary morality and also their level-headed energy. Abby as a cop roars out against the rich in the street. The Quakers face them in earnest, standing up in their churches to disrupt their corrupt services. Other sects denounce tithes. It's the Quakers who conduct the first serious campaigns of non-payment. 
they stubbornly refused to acknowledge any social distinctions. A Shropshire Quaker, Elizabeth Andrews, waited at table for Lord Newport, but refused to curtsy to him before his guests. We have one report of him teasingly offering her £20 if she'd agree to curtsy before him. And she replied that even if he offered her his entire estate, I dare not do it, for all honour belongeth to God. He took that in good humour, not everybody would. But that sort of disregard for human hierarchy won them considerable moral authority and considerable hatred. Like other sects before them, the Quakers had their ecstasies, shaking, trembling, roaring, foaming at the mouth, hence the nickname that soon became a badge of pride. But unlike the other sects, their zeal was more pointed and purposeful. For example, they're not the first sect to sometimes practice nudism in the belief that now that they're freed from original sin, they should shed the clothes which, with, with which Adam had covered his shame in the Garden of Eden. But Quaker nudity has got a polemical edge to it. This is a, 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 a mocking depiction of it, as you might gather. Um, in England's chilly northwest, Quakers are preaching stark naked in the marketplace, promising that God is going to strip the people bare of their hypocritical religion and expose their shame to the world. One Quaker walked naked through Oxford in 1654 as a sign that Cromwell would soon be stripped both of his authority and of his seeming covering of religion. Other Quakers displayed the same zeal in other ways. Their itinerant preachers ate up the miles. No one is too grand for them to confront. In 1656, a Quaker named Mary Howgill made her way, fully clothed, um, into Oliver Cromwell's rooms at Whitehall Palace and handed him a letter denouncing him as a stinking dunghill in the sight of God. Cromwell rather characteristically patiently hears her out. By then, another Quaker, an unmarried serving maid named Mary Fisher, had made her way to Barbados and from then to, there to New England. She becomes one of the first Quakers in the New World. In New England, she's accused of witchcraft and shipped home. But undaunted, she and five others back in England hatch a new scheme. They briefly consider going to minister in Jerusalem, but instead set off to preach to the two great antichrists of the Protestant imagination, the Pope and the Turkish Sultan. The party who reach Rome are imprisoned. But in 1658, after many adventures, Mary Fisher comes face to face with Sultan Mehmed IV, encamped with his army at Adrianople. And she wrote, he was very noble unto me. He and all that were about him received the words of truth without contradiction. There is a royal seed amongst them, which in time God will raise. It appears that the Ottoman Sultan was unused to Christians telling him that God's inner light was within him. But for everybody who was converted or impressed or indeed amused by the Quakers, many more were horrified. Their exponential growth, their willful disregard for social norms made them by far the most frightening of the radical sects. During 1659, that year of chaos, fears of Quakerism crescendoed. There are mob attacks. There are rumors of Quaker plots to burn cities. One preacher in July of that year openly wondered whether God would suffer the faithful to be everywhere massacred. Anti-Quaker panic helped steer that year's political helter-skelter towards a restoration of the monarchy. Presbyterians, even some independents, were beginning to fear the Quakers and sectarians more than they feared popery. Once the monarchy was restored in 1660, Quakerism quickly transformed itself into not the most but the least frightening of sects. Stable, 
It's social egalitarianism contained, peaceful to a fault, indeed more likely to cause trouble by its pacifism than anything else. That leap from terrifying extremists to harmless eccentrics in just a few years might seem hard for us to imagine in our own day, although it's not unlike the road that, say, communists have traveled in the lifetime of many of us here. The great question is, did the Quakers cease to be terrifying because they were persecuted into quietness after 1660? Because they certainly were persecuted, even if only a a handful were actually put to death. A great many more suffered grievous imprisonment, loss of property, civil rights, other systematic harassment. That certainly pushed them to become more organized and to police themselves more rigorously. But it also made them formulate their beliefs more clearly and stick to them more rigidly, which in this case meant moving to a radical peacefulness, but in other cases might not have done. More to the point, maybe, social rejection combined with a generational changing of the guard to alter the sect's mood. The one truly terrifying and intolerable feature of the early Quakers was that they were winning converts by the basket load, and this alarmed every other religious group. Within a couple of decades, that's drying up. They're raising their children in the faith, but they're not bringing in outsiders so much anymore. And so then they're able to take their place as part of what's now a religious kaleidoscope in England, a jumble of sects mixed up with one another, but not fundamentally threatening one another's identity. After he was restored, I, I, I like this picture of Charles II because he's normally shown as this, this, this sort of jolly figure. I think you know, having a sense of the man's sourness here is useful. Um, after he's restored, Charles II restores the Church of England's old legal framework, largely unchanged, as if his kingdom had simply come round after a 20 year convulsion. In 1662, about a quarter of England's parish ministers, over 2,000 men, are once again ejected for failing to conform to this restored church. But the attempt to turn the clock back fails. In 1689, his successor but one admitted that England would never again be united in religion, not even as imperfectly as it had been before the Civil War. And that's the result of the age of extremism during the years of war and revolution, the result that nobody had expected. The extremists aren't suppressed or expelled. The head of the snake is not cut off. The country is not purged of intolerables. But nor do the extremists take over. Even when their sympathizers came close to positions of power, they're fatally compromised by pragmatism. Instead, by a mixture of external pressure, the logic of their own beliefs, and of the human impossibility of keeping fires of zeal ablaze indefinitely, they settled down and became normalized. Slowly, fatefully, they learned to live with the world around them, and rather more slowly, but eventually, the world learned to live with them. <laughs>